The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Dr. Edward Reichman now presents his lecture, Monarchs, Measles, and Mitochondria, a medical historical journey. Today's session, I apologize for not, uh, not mentioning beforehand, I, I should have told you to bring your passports because we're going on a trip, going on a trip to Europe. I should have told you to bring your uh, time travel passports as well because we are going to go back in time today. Uh, and uh, right, for those of you who have trouble with visas, let me know. I'll, t I'll take care of it. I'm sure Chabad can help us work through that. Um, and we are in particular going to uh, the United Kingdom today, uh, a place of, uh, of interest today uh, in the world of Brexit, in the world of Boris Johnson. Um, any, anybody here seen The Crown? Anybody see The, uh, see the Crown? Very nice. So we, we are actually going to start way back, and we're actually going to take some travels through fascinating aspects of, uh, of British history in as much as it interfaces with Jewish medical history. And we will find some absolutely extraordinary chapters. Um, I hope you'll find them as fascinating as I do. Uh, so please uh, turn your handouts to the first page, uh, which is, and by the way, part of my interest in, in London is, uh, is the initials of the current queen. If you look on top of the first page of your handout, her, her initials are ER which is uh, for Elizabeth Regina, happened to be my initials also. Um, I also practice ER medicine, which uh, some say is not a coincidence. Um, but when I traveled there as a kid, I would take a picture at virtually every place where they had that ER. I would, I would have a, a snapshot. There were no selfies back in those days, so they were actual pictures, many of which were blurry, which we don't have anymore, no blurry pictures anymore. Uh, anybody visited the British Museum? In, uh, in London. So yesterday, <clears throat> yesterday we talked about mummies from an interesting perspective, for those of you who were at that session. We talked about the use of mummies for medicinal purposes in the 1500s, and how David Ben Zimra had been asked a halachic question about the permissibility of ingesting ancient Egyptian mummies. Today we're going to talk about some of these mummies from a slightly different perspective. We have a responsum, this is a contemporary responsum, but talks about these ancient Egyptian mummies, which today find themselves in the British Museum. Uh, and if you, if uh, I'll read for you, by the way, any of the Hebrew, of course, will be translated. Um, regarding the question, uh, for those of you who want to follow along, see if you can help me uh, read some of this Hebrew. Imuter lekohen, reading in the second line, livaker be. And then there's two words there. Anybody want to read those words in Hebrew? British Museum. Be London, in the city of London. Kevin shemotzim sham bein hayeter gufotehem shel metim chanutim. Since that amongst the other artifacts and relics you find in this museum, you find corpses, you find ancient Egyptian mummies, uh, is this a halachic problem for a member of the priestly tribe, a Kohen, who wants to visit the museum? Because after all, a Kohen is not allowed to walk into a space, an airspace, where there's, where there's a dead body, where there's a corpse. The corpse is the, the ultimate form of impurity. Is a Kohen allowed to enter there? And, uh, and he goes through an extensive discussion, and based on a very lengthy halachic and legal analysis, he actually posits uh, that uh, it would be permitted under uh, need, if there is a specific need for someone to enter that museum, because of the way the museum is designed and because of the enclosures of that museum that encircle the mum the, these mummies in areas that protect the impurity from spreading through areas of the, uh, uh, of the museum. Uh, and just so you know how complex this is, this is one of the most complex areas of law of Jewish law is impurity and purity for the Kohen, what areas a Kohen can go into. So, so Kohanim, 
A Kohen today, for example, doesn't go into a cemetery. So if a rabbi is a Kohen and needs to officiate at a funeral, they will not officiate in the cemetery itself. They will do the officiating usually outside the cemetery. Um, Kohen even walking into a hospital uh, where, there are, where there are patients that die uh, tragically, uh, especially in Israel. Um, and uh, there actually is a hospital, more than one hospital in Israel, but Sharet Tzedek is one of those hospitals where it was built from the ground with consultation of rabbinic authorities in order to be able to determine the ideal way to preclude or prevent the spread of tumah, the spread of impurity, because the impurity can spread throughout hallways and throughout doorways, um, and they built a pathology department in a certain place, uh, and if a person uh, tragically, uh, sadly dies in the hospital, they're transported through certain hallways, through certain elevators, and there's even a red light, green light in the, in the entrance to the hospital, so that if, if a person is a member of the tribe of the Kohen tribe, the priestly tribe, they will know whether they're allowed to enter the hospital or not enter the hospital. Um, so with respect to this aspect, we will say, okay, folks, that's a wrap. <laughs> Wait, what was the question? Right, the organs have been removed, but uh, even the bones c can convey impurity. And yesterday we talked about uh, 248 limbs in the body. Those limbs uh, largely include bones. One of the reasons the Mishnah and the Talmud discuss that there are 248 limbs in the body is exactly for this reason. And the Gemara even says, if a person happens upon a, a skeleton, um, what, what will convey impurity? Let's say it's only part of the skeleton. That's, that's in an enclosure. So the Gemara says, if the majority of the skeleton is in one enclosure, that will convey impurity. And it's the majority of height of the skeleton and the majority of numbers of limbs or bones of the skeleton. So that's why the Mishnah has to tell us they're 248, so that you will know if you encounter a simple majority of that, which is 125, uh, then, you, uh, then, then you would be violating a prohibition of... Uh, of Tuma. But there's an another interesting dimension, which traces itself to London as well, um, of, the, uh, of mummies, but it, an aspect we haven't talked about uh, mummies previously. Um, and let me read for you from the Torah um, in Parsha Shmos, in, the, uh, in Exodus. It says, Vayichazek lev paro. Paro's heart was hardened, and he did not give ear to them. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh's heart is heavy. He will not let the people go. So we conventionally understand this in a metaphorical sense. But there have been some who have interpreted this in a physiological and anatomical sense. And one of those is a physician, a Jewish physician named David Macht. And David Macht writes in a book that he wrote called The Heart and Blood in the Bible. He writes in the bottom of this uh, page, uh, the end of uh, the first sentence, the Hebrew expression kaved lev paro literally means the heart of Pharaoh became heavy, and he says it refers to its hypertrophy and enlargement, that it literally became heavy because Paro suffered from hardening of the heart. And what does he, he consider the hardening due to? The cause of this hypertrophy in Pharaoh was most likely arteriosclerosis and hypertension. <laughs> by, the way, by the way, I wrote an article you know, in, the, in the modern era just a year, year or so ago, which was COVID lave Paro, <laughs> saying maybe Paro had COVID, and that's what the, the uh, Torah was telling us. Um, but that, that seems like a, quite a remarkable supposition for somebody living in the 21st century to say that you know, the, the, uh, the Egyptians had hardening of the heart and had uh, arteriosclerosis. But what's fascinating is that he wrote this, and he had a, very, a colleague who was a very well-known colleague, this David Macht, and his colleague was Valdemar Hafkine. Now, Valdemar is not to, be with the not to be confused with the character from Harry Potter, not the same, uh, not the same person. Anybody here of a physician, Valdemar Hafkine? Any of you? So I will tell you that this, this man, for some reason, uh, has been stepped over in the, uh, 
in the annals of history. He's one of the most extraordinary Jewish scientists that ever lived. He, uh, he was discriminated against because he, he was Jewish and refused to revoke his Judaism. He lived in Russia initially. He couldn't advance as a scientist. He came and worked as a librarian with Pasteur in the Pasteur Institute. Uh, learned all of what, what Pasteur was doing, followed the lead of Pasteur, um, ultimately created vaccines for, for cholera and the bubonic plague at his time. He went to India where there were millions of people suffering for, from cholera, saved millions of, of people in, in India from cholera, uh, was knighted by Queen Victoria in the... Uh, in the Diamond Jubilee of, 18, of 1897. This man, Waldemar Hafkind, became more orthodox at the end of his life, studied Talmud every day, bequeathed his entire fortune to religious institutions of Torah learning because he thought that's what would perpetuate the Jewish community. He actually wrote a treatise called A Plea for Orthodoxy, which, which is available online, which you can read, which is, which is quite remarkable. But he read this essay of David Macht, and he wrote to him and he said, I'll have you know that there are British scientists today that have done studies on ancient Egyptian mummies and have actually tried to prove your theory about Kaved Lev Paro, that, that uh, Pharaoh actually had arteriosclerosis. And if you look on the right-hand side, you'll see, at the next page, rather, on the top, the top of the page, Lord Moynihan, president of the Royal College of Surgeons, lectured last night at Leeds on surgery, ancient and modern. He showed some remarkable photographic slides of results of surgical operations performed a thousand years before and the actual anatomical remains of the Pharaoh of Moses' time. Now, I don't know if it was actually the Pharaoh of Moses' time. They believed it was, but it was clearly roughly contemporary. And those of Napoleon. Perhaps the most interesting visceral discovery um, was that which afflicted the pharaoh of the oppression. And he actually recounts that he had arteriosclerosis. They actually did slides of the heart, and they proved that pharaoh, at least one of the pharaohs at that time in ancient Egypt, had arteriosclerosis. And he showed slides of what was then contemporary, which is you know, roughly around, uh, around 1900, of slides of arteriosclerosis then, and showed that the arteriosclerosis today is very similar to the arteriosclerosis back then, 2,000 years ago, in these ancient Egyptian mummies. And today, people have taken these Egyptian mummies, and instead of performing dissections, which uh, they, they don't want to disturb the, the, uh, the mummies themselves because of the curse of the mummy or for other ethical reasons, uh, so they subject them to MRIs or CAT scans and they put them through machines, and they're able to see the entire 3D structure. And if you look on your, on your handout on the right-hand side, you will see actually um, the MRI in the upper, uh, upper slide, and in the middle, you'll see some of the vessels of the lower extremities showing atherosclerotic plaques, where those arrows are, are calcium buildup in the arteries of the lower extremities. And in the very bottom, it's a little difficult to, uh, to appreciate because it's a side view, uh, but you're looking at a side view of one of these mummies. On the right side, you see the spine. Uh, but in the center of that, between the spine and the, and the front of the chest, you, is the heart, and the arrow is pointing to a big calcium plaque which sits in the arterial vessel, uh, one of the coronary, uh, coronary arteries. Let us turn to the next page. We're going to spend a few moments on some of the British monarchs and how the British monarchs interfaced with, uh, with Jewish medical history. And we go back to the early 1400s with King Henry IV. Uh, it helps to have uh, read some Shakespearean plays for a couple of the things we'll be discussing now. Henry IV uh, was suffering from a medical ailment, and he wanted a physician to take care of him. Nobody could take care of him. So he wanted a particular Jewish physician from Italy to come. Who was that physician? The physician was Elias Sabato. Elias Sabato, a very prominent religious Jewish physician, taking care of popes and kings in Italy, was requested by Henry IV to come to England. Um, Elias Sabato said, I would be happy to come treat you, Henry, but I have one request. What is that request? 
And that request, the edict of which you have before you, is that I would like, please, and I'm reading from an excerpt on the, uh, which was pulled out right underneath it, I would like decim ominibus servientibus. How many people are uh, versed in Latin here? Anybody, uh, any Latin experts? What does that mean? He would like 10 male servants to accompany him to England. Any, anybody have any idea why, uh, why Elias Sabato would like 10 people to come with him to England? He couldn't get a minion in, in London at the palace? Why not? <laughs> because the Jews had been kicked out of England in 12, 1295. The Jews had been kicked out of England. There, weren't, there wasn't a single professing Jew. There may have been Jews, admittedly. There wasn't a single professing Jew in the entire country. So he said, I will be happy to come, Henry IV, if you allow me to bring a minion of people with me. And we have, an app, we have a record documentation of that extraordinary thing. My question to you is, why did he need 10? He was the 10th. So he only needed nine servientibus. <laughs> In case somebody got sick. <clears throat> so my theory is, and, and, and uh, I'm delighted to hear other suggestions, that he was likely called to the, the castle quite often, and he would be away very often for a good portion of the day. So he didn't want to leave his retinue without the possibility of having a minion, because he'd be gone most of the time. So he brought 10 people, so they would have their own minion most of the time. I'm sorry? He went. In fact, he went. And, and King Henry IV recovered. Uh, the next king, which interfaces in a very interesting way with, uh, with, with contemporary Jewish medical ethics, is King Richard III. What does Richard III have to do with Jewish medical ethics? Oh, yes, yes, King most certainly knew he was a Jew. By the way, we're, we're, we happen to be restricting ourselves to the United Kingdom. There, there are a number of other places uh, where Jews went to... Uh, serve kings and queens, and specifically stipulated. So King uh, uh, Qu uh, Queen Marie um, of Paris, uh, roughly in the 1600s, also requested a Jewish physician. And that Jewish physician said, I, I would only come if I can avow, if I can continue my practice of religious Ju Judaism openly, which is prohibited in, in France at that time. And, uh, and there are other circumstances. That physician, by the way, wrote an entire tshuva, a responsum, about practicing on Shabbos as a physician and attending to the queen. And it, in those days, it was the use of a carriage was a relatively new phenomenon. And he took a carriage to attend the queen. And he defended his practice of getting in a carriage at that time and traveling in a carriage on Shabbos in order to treat the queen. Uh, and it was very, it's a very fascinating response. And that response is still used today in halachic discussions about the permissibility of physicians practicing medicine on Shabbos. Uh, part of the reason he said is, you know, if it was raining, I couldn't walk into the queen filthy. I'd be too exhausted to treat the queen if I didn't take that carriage. It wouldn't, uh, uh, I could probably be beheaded if I didn't treat the queen properly, if I, uh, if I didn't have my... Uh, uh, my wits about me, if you will. So how does Richard III, Richard III interfaces with, with Jewish law in a very fascinating way. Um, how many people read the play of uh, Shakespeare, familiar with the Shakespearean play Richard III? What does Richard III look like? What is his physical habitus? Scoliosis, he's a hunchback, famously a hunchback. By the way, what, what I only recently found out is there's been a debate. There are those people who say that Richard III never was a hunchback. And they, they say that there's a whole society of people that claim that Richard III was not a hunchback. Now, let me ask you, and, and I have to, to preface this. If I would have asked this question, say, like 10 years ago, you would have gone to England, you're doing this, the tours, and you're looking for the burials of all the monarchs, and you're looking for the burial place of Richard III. Where, where, would, the, where would the burial place of Richard III be? <laughs> so you guys know the story. So the answer is, nobody knew where Richard III was buried. Nobody knew. So someone did some archaeological evidence, and, they, and, uh, and by the way, Richard III was not considered one of the more, uh, you know, they sort of uh, pushed him uh, to the side in, in, uh, in British history, and I'm not an expert of British history by any sense, um, but he was sort of a forgotten king. Someone did some research and found out that there was a church 
near the battlefield where he is purported to have died. And in that church, uh, there, there was a burial ground. Where is that church today? Where is that burial ground today? It's underneath a parking lot in Leicester, England. So they identified this parking lot. They started excavating the parking lot. They found where the burial ground would have been. And as was practiced in that particular time, there was a designated area of the parking lot for prominent people. And lo and behold, in that exact section, they found a skeleton with severe kyphoscoliosis and severe head trauma, which is the way that Richard III is purported to have died, had massive holes in his skull and severe kyphoscoliosis. So they thought, bingo, this is it. We have found Richard III. But how are you going to prove it beyond all shadow of a doubt? Genetics. You need genetics. So what did they do? They did an extraordinary thing. They used not a standard genetic test. They used what's called mitochondrial DNA test. And I'll explain the relevance of this to us in the halachic world in just a moment. Mitochondrial DNA is transferred exclusively maternally from mother to child. Now, it can be transferred to a male child, but it can't be transferred from that male forward. It is a maternally transmitted gene from female down through, through females uh, across generations. What they did is they identified, in, a, in an extraordinary act of genealogical research, they identified two living maternal descendants of Richard III. That means that Bas Achar Bas, maternal descendants, women-daughter descendants, um, and keep in mind this is uh, mid-1400s, right? So this is five, six hundred years ago. They identified two living descendants. They, they analyzed the mitochondrial DNA of these descendants and the mitochondrial DNA of the skeleton. Was there a match or was there not a match? Answer was 99.999% match. So they exhumed Richard III, reburied him with an, with an honorary uh, British burial. What is the relevance to us in the Jewish community? How is Judaism determined? Matrilineally. Judaism is determined by the mother, not the father. Father could be not Jewish. The child is still halakhic Jewish as long as the mother is Jewish. So let me tell you a fictional story which will become trust me, which will become a true story in about 10, 20 years from now, maybe even less. A, uh, a boy goes to college, um, comes back from the university, uh, brings a young girl with him and says, Mom and Dad, I got good news, I got bad news. Good news is I found an amazing girl. I think she's the one for me. Her name is Kathy, and, uh, or Catherine, and the bad news is she happens to be Catholic. But she sent her DNA, a cheek swab, to 23andMe, and it turns out that her mitochondrial DNA is an exact match of an Orthodox Jewish woman uh, from about 50 years ago. So what does that tell us? If indeed she is an exact match of mitochondrial DNA to someone who lived 50 years ago who is known to be an Orthodox Jewish woman, then biologically, it must be that she is a maternal descendant to that woman. She must be halachically Jewish. So could she swap out her cross for a Jewish star and walk into shul the next day? Answer is, maybe she could. Maybe she could. Now, that case, I said, hasn't happened yet. But what about the following? Now we have a very interesting dilemma. What is our dilemma? We have a number of thousands of Russian Jews that came from Russia to, to Israel. And when they, when they enter the, the Jewish state and they want to marry in the Jewish state, they have to confirm their Jewishness. Now, if you're coming from the United States, you have uh, genealogical records, you have rabbis that can confirm your Jewishness, you have uh, cemeteries that show tombstones of family members. When you're coming from, from the, the former Soviet Union, they have none of that, zero. They have a belief that they might be Jewish, some of them, but there's no way to confirm that. Well, that's a, that's a whole different story. So, so there's, they don't know for sure he's Jewish. What, what scientists are doing now 
is they're taking large numbers of the Ashkenazi Jewish population and doing mitochondrial DNA studies to determine common mutations that are found within the Ashkenazi Jewish community. And they have identified a number of mutations in the mitochondrial DNA that are, uh, that are found in these populations. Is it possible then to say that these people who don't know their Jewishness, can we subject them to a mitochondrial DNA test? And if they share those exact mitochondrial DNA mutations, maybe we could say that they are in fact Jewish. So that is something which is, which is being done this very day. Um, yes, question. So the question was, can you use a G DNA testing and DNA analysis to determine Ashkenazi descent also? The answer to that is, is most certainly. And in fact, uh, you talk about the Spanish uh, Inquisition and, and Jews tracing themselves back to the Spanish Inquisition. A number of years ago, the country of Spain, in an act of reparation to the Jewish community, opened up citizenship to those who could prove that they were descendants of people who had been exiled or people that had, that had left during the times of the Spanish Inquisition. You're familiar, uh, you guys uh, somewhat familiar with this? So they included DNA tests. There are DNA tests to some extent which can identify you to, uh, to, to Spanish descent. And by the way, there are some who claim that there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people across the world who are Jewish and don't know it I mean, it would have to be maternal, obviously. It had to be matrilineal descent that traced themselves back to the Spanish, uh, to the Spanish Inquisition. And, and the requests were so high that the country of Spain closed the door for that, uh, for that loophole. And right now, I don't think it's possible for, uh, for Jews to use the genetic loophole in order to get to citizenship. You're saying, what's the halachic uh, approach to using mitochondrial DNA? So the answer is that, that uh, thank you for, for allowing me to clarify, it is a matter of debate today. Many, many post-scheme accept it, including Zalman uh, Nechemia Goldberg, who passed away, was one of the very prominent post-scheme in Eretz Yisrael. But it still remains a matter of debate. The chief rabbinate has used it in some circumstances. They're not using it necessarily as the sole determinant of Jewishness, they're sometimes using using it in conjunction with other uh, with other proofs as well. But it is it is an ongoing discussion, and much much literature in in, in Israel is being generated about this. Moving to our next uh, monarch, we have two, two more uh, two more in our discussion this uh, this uh, this morning this afternoon. Uh, Henry the Eighth, an aspect of Henry the Eighth which you may not be so familiar with. How does Henry the Eighth interface with the Jewish community? Um, how many, does uh, anybody here study the, uh, the Dafyomi, the, the daily, uh, daily page of the Talmud? So the, the, uh, the tractate which was finished recently, or one of the tractates that was finished recently, is Yivamot, the tractate of Yivamos. What is Yivamos about? Yivamos is primarily about leveret marriage. What is, what is leveret marriage? Leveret marriage is the Jewish concept that if a, a, a man dies, a married man, dies childless, there is a biblical obligation for his remaining brother to marry his wife, uh, his widow, his widow. Uh, now, while, while, while his wife is alive, uh, while the brother is alive, even if they divorced, he couldn't marry that woman, but only if the, if the husband dies, he would be allowed to, uh, to marry that woman. And the entire tractate, one of the more complex tractates of Jewish law, uh, deals with the issue of leveret marriage. How does that relate to Henry VIII. So it relates to Henry VIII in the following way. Henry VIII's brother was Arthur. Arthur, by the way, uh, mar Arthur married Catherine of Aragon. Do you know who Catherine of Aragon was? Catherine of Aragon, who ultimately became Henry VIII's first wife. Who was Catherine, speaking of Spanish Inquisition, who were Catherine of Aragon's parents? Anybody have any idea? Ferdinand and Isabella. Ferdinand and Isabella were Catherine of Aragon's parents. In an attempt to ally Spain with, with uh, England, uh, Henry VIII's father married his, uh, his brother Arthur to Catherine of Aragon. Very shortly after their marriage, Arthur was ill, Arthur died. Now, uh, the father, Henry VIII's father, wanted to marry his other son off to Catherine of Aragon to maintain the alliance. So what he did is he petitioned the Pope, and he said that this is an act of yibum. This is an act of leveret marriage. 
Arthur died. Uh, he, he had no children. Now let's use the biblical principle of leveret marriage, and let's marry off my son, Henry VIII, to, uh, and he's obligated. He's obligated to marry Catherine of Aragon. And in fact, he did. And with the Pope's dispensation, through Yibum, through this leveret marriage, Henry VIII married Catherine of Aragon. What happened subsequently? What happened subsequently is that Catherine of Aragon did not bear him a male heir, and he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon. So now he had to figure out a way. We know there's no divorce in the Catholic Church, so he had to go reinterpret his initial marriage to Catherine in a real Talmudic analysis and saying, you know, maybe I should, leveret marriage is really no good because uh, maybe leveret marriage is only for Jews and not for non-Jews, so maybe let's, let's reinterpret my initial marriage was really invalid, so I, should be, I don't need a dissolution from the church. It's not really a divorce. I can really now marry uh, Anne Boleyn, I think, was the second, uh, the second wife. Um, so who did he turn to? He turned to the Jewish community, people who were defending Henry VIII's right to, to marry uh, Anne Boleyn, turned to the Jewish community, and they told him, you know, the Jews have an entire tractate called Yevamos. You know, so the Jews know a tremendous amount about this. Uh, so actually, one of, the, one of the people who's written about this is a Chabad rabbi. His name is Rabbi Ellie Brackman in Oxford. Uh, and the article that I, that I bring you here is Henry VIII, Oxford's Hebraists and the Rabbis. Uh, and he writes about the, the debate the Lumdisha debate that uh, Henry VIII and his advisors asked the rabbis, and some of them actually were Jewish physicians as well, about whether Yibum would or would not apply to Henry VIII. And, uh, and he writes in this article, I'm reading from the top of the page, Rabbi Chalfon was the rav chosen by Richard Croke, Henry VIII's legal advisor, to interpret biblical law in order to justify an annulment. Rabbi Chalfon claimed that due to the prohibition of Aishas Ach, Aishas Ach is the prohibition of marrying the wife of your brother, Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine was null and void, since Jews no longer observe the mitzvah of Yibum. Uh, Jews, and of course, if Jews don't observe mitzvah of Yibum, then Henry VIII wouldn't be able to observe the mitzvah of Yibum either. He based his, his opinion on the psukim, on the verses of the Torah, that warn against marrying a sister-in-law. Another physician disagreed. And said, uh, and said no. Uh, and this was the, this is the debate about, about Yibum and, uh, and Henry VIII. Uh, in the end, by the way, there's a fascinating story I'll, I'll share just very briefly. Um, at that time, uh, they, they, so they heard about this tractate of the Talmud that deals with Yavamos, and there's a tractate that deals with divorce also. There's an entire tractate about Gittin, and Henry VIII wanted to obtain a divorce. Uh, so, they, so they said, there's this uh, tractate of the Talmud. So Henry VIII said, great, send me, send me a copy of this Talmud. So they sent off to Italy, to Venice, where a man by the name of Daniel Bomberg, who was a non-Jewish printer in the city of Venice, was beginning to print the Talmud for the very first time in all of history. And he printed an entire volume of Shas, a Talmud, uh, for Henry VIII. And he sent it, and he sent a magnificently bound shas. Uh, I believe it's the very first complete shas, Talmud, that was ever printed. And he sent it to Henry VIII. By the time it got to Henry VIII, it was no longer relevant. He'd already dispensed with Catherine of Aragon. He'd already married Anne Boleyn. So here they have this multi-volume work. What are they going to do with it? So where do they put it? They put it in the basement of Westminster Abbey. And there it sat for 500 years, 500 years, when, when they took a volume or two out for an exhibit at the Victorian Albert Museum about 20 years ago or so, uh, when a man by the name of Jack Lunzer, who is a master collector of ancient Judaica, walks in to visit this Victorian Albert Museum, sees this spectacular, gorgeous volume, and it's labeled as a Jewish Bible. And he takes a closer look at it. He goes, this is not a Bible. This is, this is a Talmud. He goes over to the curator of the exhibit. He goes, do you have any more of these volumes anywhere? He goes, yeah, we got this huge set in the base in the bowels of Westminster Abbey. There's like you know, six inches of dust on it. It hasn't been touched for centuries. So he said, do you want to get rid of it? I'll give you a, I'll write you a check, blank check. I'll write you a check. 
So they said, no, this is part of our heritage, part of our history, even though they could care less about the Shas and they haven't looked at it for hundreds of years. He came back to them year after year after year. They never sold it to him. One day, he was a diamond merchant. He was on his way to South Africa on an airplane. He's one of the few people who had a cell phone on an airplane in those days. And he's reading the newspaper, and he sees that the, the, char the original charter for the founding of Westminster Abbey is for auction. And he calls his team, and he said, I don't care what you have to do, you must get me this charter at auction. And he buys the charter at auction, goes to Westminster Abbey, knocks on the door, the sexton, the shamus of Westminster Abbey comes out, and as he recounts himself, Jack Lunzer, said the sexton says to him, Mr. Lunzer, we've been expecting you. <laughs> he purchased that shas, uh, and that shas uh, was part of his collection for many years until he passed away. And then his selection, his, his, this shas was sold off about three or four years ago um, to a New York collector for, I believe, about $7 million. Um, and that's where, that sh where, that's where the shas remains, uh, remains to this day. Any case, going back to our, uh, to our monarchs, there's another interesting interface between Jewish history, Jewish medical history, and another monarch, and that's Elizabeth I. If you look on the bottom of this page, Elizabeth I's physician was a man named Rodrigo Lopez. So the queen's physician was a man named Rodrigo Lopez. Who was Rodrigo Lopez? Rodrigo Lopez was originally born a Jew, but he avowed his belief in Christianity and cast off his Judaism, or so it was thought. There was a debate, and remains a debate to this very day, whether Rodrigo Lopez was a Murano or not, and whether, in fact, he retained his Judaism in private despite the fact that he was the physician for the Queen of England, and again, at that time, there were absolutely no Jews in England. Um, now, whether it's because he, he continued his belief in Judaism or not, uh, but it's clear that he was despised by many of his colleagues, and they, they trumped up charges that he was trying to assassinate Queen Elizabeth herself. Uh, and he was put on trial, he was convicted of, uh, of, of trying to kill the queen, and he was sentenced to death. And he was killed in the Tower of London. Um, Rodrigo Lopez. And his dying words were, uh, I love the queen as much as I love Jesus. <laughs> and to this very day, no one knows what the interpretation of those words are. But some claim that he was the model for Shylock in Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. And because as we know, people say, how, how could he have a Jew in, in, uh, in his play? He would never have seen a Jew. Jews didn't come till later, till Oliver Cromwell uh, allowed them in. It, was, it wasn't for a while later. So when Shakespeare was living, Shakespeare was writing. He was writing about a Jew, but he'd never seen a Jew. So some people say that the story of, of, these, uh, of this Jewish physician, Rodrigo Lopez, was actually the origin of the, uh, of the Shakespearean Shylock. How is Shylock interface with contemporary Jewish medical ethics today? Uh, as we turn the page, so in the actual play of Shylock, of, of, um, of the Merchant of Venice, thank you, you're all familiar with the very famous uh, uh, statement of, uh, of Shylock, um, half not a Jew eyes, and we read in the upper right-hand side, he demands, if he, he, he loans money, but if the money is not paid, he, he requests a pound of flesh in return as collateral. Uh, and he writes uh, on the upper-hand side, the, the pound of flesh which I demand of him is dearly bought. Tis mine, and I will have it. If you deny me, fee upon your law. There is no force in the decrees of Venice. I stand for judgment. Answer, shall I have it? Who owns the human body? Can one sell parts of it? What does Jewish law say about donating or selling one's organs? Those are the questions we need to ask. So he wanted a pound of flesh. He demanded a pound of flesh. So what's interesting is that a contemporary rhinic authority of the, of the late 20th century, 
Rav Shlomo Yosef Zebin in a, in a book called Laor Halacha, has some fascinating essays. And one of his essays is called Mishpat Shylock, the halachic aspects of Shylock. Can he claim a pound of flesh? Who owns this pound of flesh? Does the human being own their body? And he engages in an intense discussion. Maybe we do own our body, but maybe we don't own our body. The bottom line is, from a halachic perspective, we don't believe that the body technically belongs to us to the extent that we can sell it. Uh, we are, we are uh, baileys, we are guardians of the body, we have to preserve our health, we can't uh, simply discard the body, we can't, uh, you know, we can't uh, cause harm to our bodies, we can't do things which would uh, hurt ourselves uh, physically or mentally. Um, and, and, uh, and this has direct relevance to many halachic issues today. So let's say you want to sell an organ. Is it halachically permissible? Let's say you want to sell a kidney. Right? So there are thousands of people needing kidneys. Can you sell your kidney? So this Mishpat Shylock in Merchant of Venice is directly relevant to this halachic discussion. So the interesting answer is, from a halachic perspective, even though you don't own your body per se, and you can't sell something that doesn't belong to you, the rabbis say a person could receive compensation to donate their organ. Because that compensation is configured not as compensation for an organ, but it's compensation for wages lost, for time out of work, for, uh, for medical bills, etc. And technically, the overwhelming majority of rabbinic authorities maintain that one would be halakhically permitted to receive compensation. If not, however, if it's against the American law. And as it stands today, uh, compensation for, uh, for organ donation still remains, still remains uh, illegal. I'm going to turn a few pages, uh, few pages forward. Let us turn to, uh, to the page that says, it looks like this, with William, uh, two William Hunter is on, the, uh, is on the cover. It's a few pages forward. So, unfortunately, some of the history of, uh, of London or England and Jewish medical history is a little on the dark side. And one of those chapters, which is a little dark, is the, uh, is the story of Levy Weil. Levy Weil was a Jewish physician that lived in London in the 1700s um, and went a little off, off the derech, off the path, if you will. Uh, and he, uh, he couldn't uh, support himself uh, as being a physician, and he became a thief and a burglar. In one of his burglaries, him and his group uh, unfortunately killed the owner of the house. And they were, and they were apprehended. They were, sub they, they were on the loose. They ran away from the authorities. And the gabai of the shul in London, the central synagogue in London, was approached by the police and said, this is a member of your community who committed this crime. Please help us find him. Uh, it was a very challenging and difficult situation. They apprehended him with the assistance of the Jewish community. They identified this gentleman, Naftali Hart Myers, who was the, uh, the gabai of the shul at that time. Um, and Levy Weil and his entire group were sentenced to death. Uh, we have the court records of that, uh, of that court case. What was common, and this relates to our discussion as we turn the page here, what was common in those times is that people who were sentenced to death uh, the body was given to the medical school for dissection for the medical students because there weren't enough cadavers for the medical schools. And one of the sources of cadavers for the medical schools were, were people who were sentenced to, uh, to death for, uh, for criminal crimes and either hanged or, uh, or, or uh, executed otherwise. So Levy Weil was actually dissected by William Hunter, who was one of the great anatomists of that period of time. Uh, and furthermore, and you have some records of this, we're not going to read those now in the interest of time, but you have some records on your handout. The actual body of Levy Weil, after the dissection of William Hunter, was converted into what's called an écorché, meaning it was, uh, it was preserved, and the very body to this day sits in the hallway of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. And if you walk into the Royal Academy of Arts in London, which I did uh, about a year or two ago, it was pre-COVID, Sarah, right? Uh, and I went to the Royal Academy of Arts, and there you have the, the body of Levy Weil. 
um, from that dissection of William Hunter. What's when a Cohen can't go in there, correct? <laughs> so what subsequently happened, interestingly, is that the Shamus, whose name was Naphtali Hart Myers, had a son who may have been exposed to William Hunter during that period of dissection for Levy Weil and ultimately became a student of his in the medical school in London and became a very prominent Jewish physician uh, and one of, the members, one of the members of the Royal Society subsequently. And I'm going to turn another, uh, I'm just trying how much time we have here. Okay, we have a little bit of time. So let's turn to another aspect of England and the interface of uh, science and medicine. And that's something which we can all relate to in, the, uh, in this, uh, this COVID, intra-COVID, hopefully soon to be post-COVID world. Uh, and that's the field of vaccination. Um, and if you look at the, the picture over here, there's a, this is the, uh, the picture in your handout with the beautiful color illustration on the very bottom. The very first vaccination was developed by Edward Jenner, who was a British physician. And without going into the, to the history, I just want to share with you that anti-vaxxers existed even at the very first vaccination in history. Um, and you have in your handout, has anyone ever seen this illustration by, uh, by James Gilray um, on the bottom? So it's a beautiful illustration. It's a famous illustration in medical history, but you may not have seen it. And what you see, it's an anti-vaxxer illustration. The, the original smallpox vaccination was comprised of, small, of cowpox, of derivative of sick cows. And that was the, the, the origin of this vaccination. So what this picture is showing is it's showing that these people who take the vaccination will themselves morph or become cows. They'll morph into cows. And if you look very closely, You'll see cows coming out of people's hands. You see one person's head becoming, growing horns like a cow, et cetera, et cetera. What is interesting from our perspective, and I apologize, I didn't, I didn't pull it out and make it larger. There is a painting hanging in that scene. What is that a painting of? That is a painting of the golden calf. Is that unbelievable? So I'd seen this picture for years and years and years. And then someone pointed, I never noticed it myself, someone wrote an entire article that the golden calf is in that picture. Why is the golden calf in that picture? So could be because they're praying to a false messiah. That was their belief. So vaccination is your false messiah. Um, but we know in, in retrospect that the vaccination is one of the most extraordinary things in, in all of medicine. And just to turn the page, the, the notion of claiming religious exemption is not new to the 20th, 20th or 21st century either. And a gentleman by the name of Mr. Levy, when it became required by law in, in England to vaccinate, Mr. Levy said, and this is in 1800, I can't vaccinate because I'm Jewish and the vaccination comes from a, a sick cow and that cow is treif. That cow is not kosher and I can't put that cow, that cow into my body. And, uh, and the, uh, the attorney uh, general at that time in, in uh, London, the chief attorney, was also a Jewish man, and he threw him in jail because he had to. But he felt guilty. So he went to the chief rabbi of England, and he said, Rabbi, did I do the right thing? Maybe he's right. Is it true that Judaism said you're not allowed to vaccinate? Now, keep in mind, this is the very first vaccination in all of history. At that time, there was only one thing that was being vaccinated for, and that was smallpox. What was the chief rabbi's response, Chief Rabbi Herman Adler? He said to Mr. Harris, um, that Mr. Levy, quote, it's the reading on the, uh, the bottom of this uh, yellowed uh, section, Mr. Levy was not justified in making the statements contained in the letter that the most competent medical authorities were agreed as to vaccination being a prophylactic against smallpox and added that its use was in perfect consonance with the letter and spirit of Judaism. So even back then, when there was one, just one, that was the... Uh, that was considered to be not only halakhically appropriate, but halakhically mandatory. In those days, the vaccination was more risky than the vaccinations are today. Fast forward today where there's vaccinations for, for many hundreds of different things. And one final thing, and with this we'll close, on the page, uh, next page which says grave robbing in the Jews, we talked about uh, anatomical dissection and some of the bodies ended up in, uh, in, in a museum, we said the Royal Academy of Arts. But when dissection became an integral part of medicine, 
and they didn't have enough bodies, and that's why they had to use criminals. The other source of bodies was grave robbing. And grave robbing affected the Jewish community specifically. Why did it affect the Jewish community? The Jewish cemeteries were the preferred source of bodies. Why do you think that was? It wasn't anti-Semitism. It's because Jews bury quickly and immediately and the bodies were fresh. So these were the freshest specimens for the dissection table. So how did this impact in the Jewish community? If you look at this ticket, this is a fascinating historical record from the, the, the great synagogue of London in the late 1700s. This is a ticket issued to a member of the great synagogue. And his name is written on the ticket. And look at the border. What is the border comprised of? Skull and crossbones. Um, Shlomo Schneider was the name of this particular individual, and it says, Shmo Elo Begoral, your name came up in the lottery. It is your turn, Shlomo Schneider, to do your civic duty. What is your civic duty? Guard the cemetery from dusk till dawn to make sure that no graves in the Jewish cemetery are robbed. And it continues, if you can't make it, you have to get someone to switch with you. And if you neglect to show up at all, then you'll be fined, you know, X number of, uh, of whatever the currency was, uh, currency was at that time. And even Shakespeare, to get back to Shakespeare, was concerned about grave robbing. And if you look on the bottom of this handout, on the bottom right-hand side, Shakespeare's epitaph reads, Good friend, for God's sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be ye man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. This is Shakespeare's epitaph. So in conclusion, we've had an opportunity, and I apologize we couldn't get to everything, but we've had an opportunity um, to discuss the interrelationship between uh, some fascinating European history and the, and the Jewish tradition. This kind of interface and interrelationship continues today into the 20th and 21st century. And God willing, over the next few sessions, we will return to the present. And you needn't bring your passports to the future presentations. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.